The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Ever since you've come on board, you've been moody, sullen, and rude. What's going on? Nothing. I just want to be left alone. That incident in engineering was inexcusable. That is my business. I don't need you telling me how to behave. I shouldn't have to. You're a fourth-year Starfleet cadet. You should have a certain level of maturity. Maybe I am sick of following rules and regulations. Maybe I'm sick of living up to everyone else's expectations. Did you ever think of that? Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, May 16, 2019. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Got this feedback in our email this week, and this is from David O. who wrote to us, You guys said you support some regulations on business or otherwise, but didn't explain. Could you please give a principle for the regulations and some examples? Thank you. And I thought that was a great question that David asked there. And in principle, we've always maintained that a government, quote, should be a referee and not a player in the game, or that, quote, unquote, self-regulation is preferred over external regulations wherever possible. We have, from time to time, also discussed very specific and singular regulatory issues. But, you know, not necessarily from a broad regulatory focus as such. In other words, we didn't really look at the issue of regulation itself as being the issue. So that's what we'll be doing today, right after I remind you that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, follow us on SoundCloud, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, our archive broadcasts, and of course, where we encourage you to offer your financial support and in so doing, become part of our effort to enlighten others about the true nature of freedom and capitalism. Now, on past shows, we've certainly focused on specific regulatory actions as they might have related to a narrow topic or target of regulation. And to cite just a few of these highlights for you, This is just a sample. For example, back in 2015, on April 16th, just right 396, we were looking at the enforcement of carbon monoxide detectors first being enforced to be put in homes the day before that broadcast in the province of Ontario. In 2007, on just right 34, which aired December 13th, and we highlighted some very disturbing statistics on airbag regulation and the enforced regulation of their installations in cars. And of course, we've been looking at things like CRTC rules and regulations, which in Canada regulate cultural content requirements on broadcast media. On just right 126 on 2009, October 29th. (laughs) Way back in 2008, we dealt with sex show regulations, in this case involving some stage acts that were being performed here in London at the Western Fairgrounds in the city. And of course, we've dealt with issues like the banning of incandescent light bulbs and their regulation of sales. And another issue, of course, another form of regulation, 
was the whole issue of political financing and political party regulations. And we dealt with that in great detail, both on September 8th, 2016, and on July 27th, 2017, just right 469 and 515. But that's just an idea of how we might have approached the whole field of regulations in the past. Really one issue at a time. Now, of course, it's pretty much impossible to discuss regulations without using specific examples. And we'll certainly do that today. But we won't be making the examples themselves the main focus of our attention today. Although we might give some examples a little more focus than others. So to get back to letter writer David who asked us to please give a principle for the regulations and some examples. Now, David was responding to my own response to some feedback we received on the show two weeks ago on May 2nd from another letter writer named Doug, who apparently was under some misunderstanding that because we're all about individual freedom and capitalism, that we don't believe in any regulations of any sort at all. Now, he didn't put it in those exact words, but that was certainly part of the implication of his comments. Doug suggested that we needed regulations to prevent banking system failures like that recently experienced in the U.S. And in my response to him, I replied, quote, to suggest that regulations stop things like banking system failures when all the evidence has demonstrated that it was the regulations that caused the banking failures, it's clear that you're not applying the principle of regulation to any concretes, nor distinguishing good regulations from bad ones. Of course, businesses require regulations within which to function, end quote. Well, perhaps Doug's impression was one that many might have understandably arrived at, especially given something like that list of past shows I mentioned, where we discuss specific regulations in a very critical and unapproving way. I mean, that was the purpose of those shows. So there are some definite distinctions that need to be made. One of them being distinguishing good regulations from the bad ones, as I mentioned, and of course, determining exactly what a regulation is, when it is needed, and when it is not needed. So before we get down to definitions, I thought I might begin with a true story, a little bit humorous actually, one that I personally experienced way back in the mid-1980s, and that I think might help explain why the issue of regulation can often be more complex than it need be. A group of us was just beginning to organize the officially registered Freedom Party of Ontario. To help us facilitate our research and knowledge of the issues, we developed a system of filing newspaper, magazine, and other print publication articles on specific issues that might concern a political party. That way, if we were called upon to comment on a given issue, we could research it in a hurry and sound quite informed and up-to-date on that particular issue. Remember, there's no internet or Google to research issues back then, and to be quite frank, print publications at the time were far more useful and informative than is the case today. In fact, Freedom Party was in the news quite regularly during this early period in its history. So one day, we had a volunteer work in the office for us, and he was instructed to take a box of unfiled news and editorial clippings and sort them by subject heading in alphabetical order for which we had a whole row of metal filing cabinets in which to store them. And it was a great system. So I left the volunteer with his task while I focused on other work that needed to be done. And you know, it wasn't long before he was finished. In almost record time, I might add. Wow, we'll have to get this volunteer in more often to do our news clipping filing for us in the future, I was thinking. Well, sure enough, when I went to see what might be filed under, say, 
education, or pollution, there were no additional news items beyond those that were already previously filed. I could tell this by the date stamped on the clippings. So I asked a volunteer where I might find the news and commentaries that he filed on these particular subjects, and suddenly I understood why he was able to complete the task so efficiently. With the exception of perhaps a handful of articles, every news and editorial clipping was filed under, you guessed it, regulations. <laughs> Abortion? File under regulation. Addiction and drugs? File under regulation. Climate, environment, culture, education, energy, power, electricity? Hey, file them under regulation. Pollution, technology, agriculture, gender, guns and gun control, health care, justice, labor, marijuana laws, pornography, rent control, everything under regulation. Now, this volunteer was a very intelligent person, attended university with excellent marks, and so this was a, you know, a learning experience for me, just how differently different people might categorize certain issues in their mind, which was not to suggest that there weren't many legitimate clippings, that would only have concerned themselves with broader issues of regulation themselves. There was a legitimate category that was strictly limited to regulation. But it was an interesting lesson that I learned myself. And I have to admit, you know, <laughs> you just couldn't help but get a chuckle out of this whole event. So let's begin with some definitions regarding regulations. And it'll soon become apparent that to define regulation as such is not as simple as it appears mostly because that word regulation can easily be taken to mean something like the words rule or law or govern or control, which coincidentally happened to be the first three words and derivatives I checked for defining parameters. So, for example, regulate from the dictionary. One, to direct or control according to certain rules, principles, etc. Two, to adjust according to a standard or degree, etc. For example, to regulate currency. Well, there's a proverbial can of worms right there, isn't it? Already, regulate means rule and means adjustment. Then there's the word regulation itself. One, the act of regulating, or the state of being regulated, and two, a rule of conduct. So, regulation and rule are almost the same thing. Regulator, one who or that which regulates. Two, a device for regulating the rate of a watch. Three, in mechanics, a contrivance for regulating or equalizing motion or flow. Now, interestingly, Isabel Patterson referred to the word governance in the same context that would use the example of a governor as a device to say, speed or slow the rate of a train by adjusting the energy that fueled and affected the speed of the train. Then there's the word law. One, a rule of conduct, recognized by custom or decreed by formal enactment, considered as binding on the members of a community, nation, etc. Two, a system or body of such rules. Three, the condition of society when such rules are observed to establish law and order. Four, the body of authoritatively established rules relating to a specific subject or activity, as in criminal law. Five, remedial justice as administered by legal authorities to resort to the law. Six, the branch of knowledge concerned with jurisprudence. Seven, the vocation of an attorney 
etc., the legal profession. 8. The rules and principles of common law and statute law as distinguished from equity. 9. An authoritative rule or command, as in his will is law. 10. Divine will, command, or precept, also a body of rules having such divine origin. And 11. Any generally accepted rule, procedure, or principle governing a specified area of conduct, body of knowledge. Then the word rule itself. 1. Controlling power or its possession and exercise. Government. Dominion. Authority. 2. A method or principle of action. I make early rising my rule. 3. An authoritative direction or enactment respecting the doing or method of doing something. The rules of a game. 4. A regulation or body of directions laid down by or for a religious order. 5. A prescribed form, method, or set of instructions for solving a given class of mathematical problems. 6. An established usage of law, fixing the form or use of words, or the construction of sentences. 7. Something belonging to the ordinary course of events or condition of things. 8. Regular or proper method. Propriety, as of conduct, regularity. 9. Law. Now we've gone full circle again. A judicial decision on some motion or special application. A rule to show cause. And we could have continued on with definitions of words like governance or governing and continually run into the same self-referent terms to define one concept or the other. So you can see the problem. There is no simple definition for any one of these words that doesn't require the use of the other word. Now, before we go on to list a number of regulations that we ourselves would have no problem supporting, first let's listen in to the late Nobel laureate economist Milton Friedman from his 1980 10-part television series, Free to Choose, on one of those issues concerning regulations that seems to never go away in the minds of most people, the issue of so-called consumer product and service regulations, and who also offers us a brief history of these regulations from their very beginnings in the United States up to the time of his account in 1980. Now consider that since that time, things have gotten much, much, much more expensive, complicated, and even more regulated. The federal regulations that govern our lives are available in many places. One set is here, in the Library of Congress, in Washington, D.C., in 1936, the federal government established the Federal Register to record all of the regulations, hearings, and other matters connected with the agencies in Washington. This is volume one, number one. In 1936, it took three volumes like this to record all these matters. In 1937, it took four. And then it grew and grew and grew. At first, rather slowly and gradually, but even so, year by year, it took a bigger and bigger pile to hold all the regulations and hearings for that year. Then, around 1970, came a veritable explosion, so that one pile is no longer enough to hold the regulations for that year. It takes two and then three piles, until on one day in 1977, September 28th, the Federal Register had no fewer than 1,754 pages. And these aren't exactly what you would call small pages either. 
Many of those regulations come from this building. Consumer Product Safety, our lines are busy. Would you hold, please? Thank you. The Consumer Product Safety Commission is one of the newest agencies set up in our behalf. Coil. May I help you? One of its jobs is to give advice to consumers. And, uh, the cue that gave it away is that uh, those that are involved... And what has been done about the flammability of children's garments? But its main function is to produce rules and regulations, hundreds and hundreds of them, designed to assure the safety of products on the market. It's hard to escape the visible hand of the Consumer Product Safety Commission. Except for food and drugs, ammunition and automobiles, which are covered by other agencies, it has power to regulate just about anything you can imagine. Already, it costs $41 million a year to test and regulate all these products on our behalf. And that's just the beginning. The commission employs highly trained technicians to carry out tests like this, checking the brakes on a bike. But the fact is that 80% of bike accidents are caused by human error. These tests may one day lead to safer brakes. But even that isn't sure. The one thing that is sure is that the regulations that come out of here will make bikes more expensive and will reduce the variety available. When governments do intervene in business, innovation is stifled. Railroads have been regulated for nearly a century, and they are one of our most backward industries. The railroad story shows what so often results from the good intentions of consumer protection groups. In the 1860s, railroad rates were lower in the United States than anywhere else in the world, and many customers thought that they were too high. They complained bitterly about the profits of the railroads. Now, the railway men of the time had their problems, too. Problems that arose out of the fierce competitiveness among them. Many railroads, all trying to get their share of the market, all trying to make a name for themselves. What we have here is a railroad map of the United States for the year 1882. It shows every railroad then in existence. The country was literally crisscrossed with railroads, going to every remote hamlet and covering the nation from coast to coast. Between points far distant, like for example, New York and Chicago, there might be a half a dozen lines that would be running between those two points. Each of the half dozen trying to get business would cut rates and rates would get very low. The people who benefited most from this competition were the customers shipping goods on a long trip. On the other hand, between some segments of that trip, Say, for example, Harrisburg and Pittsburgh, there might be only a single line that was running, and that line would take full advantage of its monopoly position. It would charge all that the traffic would bear. The result was that the sum of the fares charged for the short hauls was typically larger than the total sum charged for the long haul between the two distant points. Of course, none of the consumers complained about the low price for the long haul, but the consumers certainly did complain about the higher prices for the short hauls, and that was one of the major sources of agitation 
leading ultimately to the establishment of the Interstate Commerce Commission. The cartoonists of the day delighted in pointing out that railroads had tremendous political influence, as indeed they did. They used the consumers' complaints to get the government to establish a commission that would protect the railroad's interests. It took about a decade to get the commission into full operation. By that time, needless to say, the consumer advocates had moved on to their next crusade. But the railway men were still there. They had soon learned how to use a commission to their own advantage. They solved the long-haul, short-haul problem by raising the long-haul rates. The customers ended up paying more, some protection. In the 1920s and 30s, when trucks emerged as serious competitors for long-distance hauling, the railroads induced the commission to extend control over trucking. Truckers, in their turn, learned how to use a commission to protect themselves from competition. This firm carries freight to and from the Dayton, Ohio International Airport. It's the only one serving some routes, and its customers depend on it. But Dayton Air Freight has real problems. Its ICC license only permits it to carry freight from Dayton to Detroit. To serve other routes, it's had to buy rights from other ICC license holders, including one who doesn't own a single truck. It's paid as much as $100,000 a year for the privilege. Our company is in the process of trying to get rights to go there now. Yes, we'll do that, and thank you for calling, sir. The owners of the firm have been trying for years to get their license extended to cover more routes. Now, I have no argument with the people who already have ICC permits, excepting for the fact that this is a big country, and since this, the inception of the ICC in 1936, there has been very few entrants into the business. They, they do not allow new entrants to come in and compete with those who are already in. Dayton Air Freight now has many of its trucks lying idle, trucks that could be providing a valuable service. Far from protecting consumers, the ICC has ended up making them worse off. As far as I'm concerned, there is no free enterprise in interstate commerce. It no longer exists in this country. Uh, you have to pay the price, and you have to pay the price very dearly. And that not only means that we have to pay the price, it means that the consumer is paying that price. Small wonder that philosopher-novelist Ayn Rand made the railroad industry the central theme of her infamous book, Atlas Shrugged. If you want to actually get as close as you can to experiencing the effects of state regulation on the railroad industry, that's the book to read for sure. The stack of regulations and bound volumes of regulations that were piled high around Milton Friedman as he was demonstrating just how virulent the growth of regulations can become was reminiscent of a similar stack of regulations that were piled high when U.S. President Donald Trump vowed to eliminate two regulations for each new regulation that was being created in the United States. Clearly, most regulations have become unnecessary, perhaps outdated, and certainly counterproductive, which does not serve the general good or the general welfare. But again, just because there might be 10, 100, or 1,000 bad regulations for each good and necessary regulation does, does not delegitimize the latter. In making distinctions between laws and regulations, it's clear that both 
imply a system of rules of some sort. I mean, that's a given. However, I would suggest that a law establishes a primary or supreme right or authority, while a regulation is the adjuster of that law, or as some might say, the regulation is the devil in the details. And most often, though not always, laws are established by the higher authority while some branch of administration of a given law is passed on to some regulatory department, which becomes a bureaucracy. Now consider what a devil the regulation or regulations can actually become when, as Milton Friedman pointed out, a regulatory body like the Consumer Product Safety Commission actually has, quote, the power to regulate just about anything you can imagine, end quote. That's frightening, especially when you consider that having the power to regulate means having the power to use the coercive force of the law to enforce those regulations. And that implies legal consequences of some sort, either taking the form of some kind of fine, penalty, or prohibition. Or, as has increasingly become the case, the form of some kind of compulsion to act against one's conscience, as we'll explore in a few moments. Therefore, when you might hear us complain about a particular regulation, it may not be the existence of the regulation that's being objected to, just the particular manner in which that regulation is being enforced. So before we drift back to our objections regarding certain regulations, let's first establish some principles and ground rules that would constitute valid or justifiable regulations and their limits. As I noted at the beginning of our show today, one of those principles is the broad understanding that when it comes to government regulations, government should be a referee and not a player in the game, and that self-regulation should be preferred over external regulation whenever possible. Namely, justifiable regulations would be those that would enhance freedom and individual rights and not restrict them, though that is not the only criteria, as might be the case with legitimate pollution laws and regulations. Now, when we talk about regulations, we're always talking about something or activity subject to these regulations, and one of the starting points is ownership and property rights. He who owns the land calls the regulatory tune, you might say. Since, for example, crown lands fall under the jurisdiction of a particular government that governs them, though not a form of private ownership, then the government has the authority to determine what activities may or may not be permitted on such lands or properties. And confusion often arises when some area, property, or land is considered public or private. But there are two contexts of what is meant by public versus private, one being ownership, the other being use. For example, a shopping mall or a grocery store may be privately owned, but is rightly considered a public space, because the public is openly invited and permitted to be there. That would require a different set of rules and regulations than might be the case in your own private home or out on the public streets and sidewalks. Another area may be owned or fall under the jurisdiction of a public body, like a particular government, but the public may not be permitted to be there, you know, like a military base or a government office. Most people would regard our road systems to be public places, but that doesn't mean you can just set up a tent and camp out in the middle of a highway. It has a designated and regulated use established by the quote-unquote owner of that road. And in most municipalities, the roads are technically owned by a corporation that has exclusive jurisdiction of that road. Now, the roads in my town 
are technically owned by the corporation of the City of London, not by the broader population that may inhabit the city as such. Therefore, the regulation of vehicles on public streets is a perfectly legitimate form of regulation to which no one should object. From parking to speed limits, these are within a proper regulatory jurisdiction of the city. Now, where parking should be permitted or not permitted, or what a particular speed limit should be, that's a separate issue, and I may well object to a particular speed limit as being inappropriate, but I would not be challenging the right of the city to establish speed limits. The same may apply to certain zoning regulations. Can't set up a retail chain in a residential zone. This protects the property rights and usage of those who have already established rights in the area in this regard. Other legitimate areas of regulation would include, for example, the regulations of airplanes and jets traveling in national airspace, the regulation and licensing of radio and television frequencies, signal strength, and direction with the objective of protecting the property rights of those who hold the right to those frequency, which is a lot like enforcing property rights. Then there are things like quarantine regulations that could be perfectly legitimate when there's an outbreak of a dangerous, contagious disease that would otherwise harm the public. Registering businesses and their owners so that legal redress can be properly administered when necessary is another proper area of regulation. Laws and regulations against fraud and misrepresentation are a necessity in any functional marketplace where trade and commerce take place. And, of course, there should be no use of initiatory force or coercion in the marketplace. The law of supply and demand should never be interfered with. Environmental regulations are certainly acceptable within reason. Regulations limiting or prohibiting pollution when dealing with real pollution, certainly not carbon dioxide. Now, whether we like it or not, regulations of various sorts, whether public or private, naturally arise when people interact with one another and certain standards of behavior or activity demand methods of resolving disputes and disagreements among and between various parties. Whether these regulations are enforced by law, the courts, or some form of civil complaint mechanism is secondary to the principle at stake. Now here again is Milton Friedman as heard in his 1980 TV series, Free to Choose. I, I have never seen a, have you ever seen a, a cat that barked? Not especially, no. <laughs> well, governmental agencies and governmental laws follow their own laws. Just as the physical laws say that cats don't bark, these laws of social science say that when you start and set up a regulatory agency with power, those powers are going to be used. Uh, let me give you one piece of information about one area of very important health and safety regulation, which I think even Milton Friedman would be in favor of in some form, and that is the regulation of pollution control, or at least the establishment of property rights, uh, so as to somehow reduce uh, pollutant levels from what they would be if we allowed unlimited pollution. Milton, what's your reaction to his pollution point? Because I know he's very keenly interested in it. Well, he and I would agree, I would agree with his general position that there is a role for government in pollution. I would agree, second, that the present techniques of controlling pollution are terrible. And they are terrible, and they are what they are for precisely the reasons he specifies, because they are an effective way in which you can use the excuse of pollution to serve some very different objectives. That's part of the way in which governments meow, if I may go back to my cat. But there is a real role for government because that is a case in which you're protecting third parties. And every one of the valid cases, in my opinion, 
for government entering in has to do with third parties. There's a case for requiring breaks because that's to protect the person you might hit. That's wholly different. There's no case for requiring an airbag, in my opinion, but there is a case for requiring well, good injured, breaks. Do you accept that distinction, by the way? No, because yeah. when you're injured because of a failure to use a passive restraint, I am, in a sense, going to have to help pick up part of your medical bills, part of your insurance Absolutely. rates, because they're spread across. Absolutely. And so only on Gilligan's Island, when you have six or nine people not interacting such that all of society is affected, does your distinction have any validity? The problem with your answer is that you're saying one wrong justifies another. I believe that we ought to have much less government intervention into those areas as well. And I don't, am not willing to follow a policy which implies saying, you, uh, that every person goes around with a sign on his back saying, property of the U.S. government, do not mutilate, spindle, or bend. Fight the orders of the ranking officer on the scene. You put the lives of the entire away team in jeopardy, and you made an already tense situation worse. Your actions reflect very badly on this ship and on that uniform. Now I want an explanation, Mr. Crusher, and I want it now. What you're doing down there is wrong. That does not alter the fact that my orders I are I know to... Admiral Necheyev gave you an order, and she was given an order from the Federation Council. But it's still wrong. That decision is not yours to make, cadet. I don't know what has got into you lately. And frankly, right now, I don't care. But I will tell you this. While you wear that uniform, you will obey every order you are given. And you will conform to Starfleet regulations and rules of conduct. Is that clear? Yes, sir, it is. But I won't be wearing this uniform any longer. I'm resigning from the Academy. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. You know, sometimes you just have to say no to rules and regulations, and that's one of the circumstances that has recently arisen within the Law Society of Ontario. Two weekends ago, Robert Vaughn and I attended the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship's annual general meeting up at Western University in London, where in addition to the speakers we were there to record... Among the attendees were two lawyers who spearheaded a drive against compelled speech at the Law Society of Ontario. Quote, All lawyers and paralegals play a vital role in accelerating culture shift, one of five strategies adopted by the Law Society to address the barriers faced by racialized licensees. As part of the strategy, you are required to create and abide by an individual statement of principles that acknowledges your obligation to promote equality, diversity, and inclusion generally, and in your behavior towards colleagues, employees, clients, and the public, end quote. Now, this was actually a direction from the Law Society of Ontario to its membership in 2017. The obvious political ideology at play here offended many Ontario lawyers, and some of them banded together to create Stop SOP, which stands for Stop the Statement of Principles. In April 2019, they fielded a slate of 22 bencher candidates who stood for election to the Society's convocation, with the entire slate being elected. 
leading the revolt against the compelled speech and in favor of nonpartisan lawyers were Law Society members Lisa Bildy, Stop Sop Campaign Chair, and Bruce Party, professor of law at Queen's University. Robert Vaughn interviewed Bruce and Lisa while attending the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship, and here's that interview, which we grabbed just moments after the wrap-up of one of the speaking events, which will account for some of the background noise you'll hear. But this is a very serious issue, not one to be taken lightly. So I'm with Bruce Pardee and Lisa Bildy from the Law Society of Ontario. And you, you started, Lisa, I understand, a, uh, an organization called Stop SOP, which, and SOP standing, of course, for a statement of principles that the Law Society of Ontario compelled lawyers in Ontario to write. Can you explain why you're opposed to it? Well, the statement of principles was uh, essentially requiring all lawyers in the province to uh, agree to promote particular values. Uh, they were equality, diversity, and inclusion. Um, promote them not just in their practices, and not just acknowledge that you have a duty to um, follow human rights laws, which nobody would oppose, but you had to promote these values, not just in your professional life, but also in your personal life, even if you were retired. Uh, it was very clearly to us compelled speech uh, because you were expected to put the statement in place that you were, in, you were going to abide by these obligations and, uh, as a condition of practicing law. Right. And uh, I understand from you, Bruce, at the, the Runnymede Society, right. you made a very uh, good argument that, uh, against diversity, inclusion, and equality, saying that you're actually opposed to those three things, but then, of course, you defined your terms. Right, Now, exactly. So that's, that's the qualification, right? So it depends upon what you mean by the terms. So what the law society says that it means by equality, for example, is substantive equality, equality of outcome. And they, they say so on their own website. So when you are doing your statement of principles, you are required to acknowledge your obligation to promote equality of outcome. And if you happen to believe in equality of application or equality of opportunity, then that's not doing what you're being told to do. So it's not just a matter of being in favor of some version of the concept of equality, diversity, and inclusion. You have to agree to the ones that they've given you. So that, that's what makes this an imposition of an ideology so as to be qualified to practice law. Yes, as a matter of fact, I, I would, as a layman, say that as a very political ideology because not all political parties, not all politics in, in Canada agree with that interpretation of what those words mean. So to actually come out and say that all of the lawyers in Ontario mm -hmm. now line up with this political ideology is damaging to, to the legal system in Ontario, wouldn't you agree? In order to have a system that's compliant with the rule of law, you really need independent lawyers. If you don't have that, you really don't have that kind of system. And this is a step down that road to having the beliefs, the values of lawyers controlled by the regulator. And we, that, that, that simply is not on. Now, I understand that you had a slate of candidates that were recently elected, and every single, single one of those slate of candidates for the Law Society opposed the statement of principles. Can you tell us what comes next? Okay, well, uh, that was the first step. It was a significant step, actually, because uh, I can just also tell you that it was very challenging to um, get lawyers to step out of their comfort zone. 98% of lawyers in this province checked the box to say that they'd complied with that regulation. People were f fearful, uh, worried about their livelihoods, and so it was a significant effort to get 
uh, enough people to stand up and say, this is wrong, that we built um, a pushback effort. And then from that, it grew into uh, a political movement, in effect, and we had enough candidates to oppose the statement of principles to make a difference. Uh, and we educated the province, uh, the, all the lawyers in the province, about what was going on, and they came out and forced to vote for us. So, But that's only the first step. The next step now is, once our candidates go to convocation, which is the name for the board that, that governs the law society, um, the, uh, the, the challenge will be to get enough votes to actually rescind the statement of principles, which is currently a policy of, of, the, um, of the law society. So we have to have a motion brought forward to, to rescind it. And the mood amongst your colleagues? Well, of the slate candidates? Well, well no, of, 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 of all your colleagues, not oh, just the ones on the slate, because well, we know I, what they think. I'm, <laughs> I'm hearing, I'm hearing, as the organizer of Stop Stop, I'm hearing from all the lawyers that are absolutely jubilant about this, because they were worried. I've had people say this was an existential thing for them. They could not, in good conscience, check that box. Uh, it was so disturbing to them that the Law Society would think that it was appropriate to control lawyers' thoughts. And because of that, they didn't think they could be able to practice law going forward. It was disturbing for people. So they, the, I have not been on top of my emails because there are, there are hundreds of them from people saying, thank you so much for having the courage to stand up and do something about this. Now, Bruce, you actually likened perhaps yourself to a Sir Thomas More. Oh, I wouldn't go. I, I, no, no. But the Sir Thomas More um, idea was that in difficult moments, one of the choices you have is to go along even if you don't agree to betray yourself as so as to save yourself and that's that's one thing that Thomas More wouldn't wouldn't do and he lost his head now nobody's going to lose their head over this but they might well have lost their license and that's that's an important thing um, whenever you're in a situation where you have to profess a belief in order to to secure your livelihood then that suggests something's not right and that's the thing that we were trying to fix any further comments well, I, I think that we've done something very positive for uh, showing people, not just in the legal profession, but in the broader populace, that you can stand up against these things. You just need to find the courage and you need to rally support. Um, but I hope that this provides some encouragement to those facing these kinds of political litmus tests in other areas, that they too can stand up and say, no, this is too much. Thank you both very much and good Thanks. luck. Thank you very much. You can watch that interview on Just Right's YouTube channel, and although that kind of regulation might have been a unique precedent to the Law Society, it's certainly nothing new within the broader jurisdiction of Canadian governance. Language and cultural regulations have long been part of Canada's history. I recall back in the mid-1970s when I was attending Fanshawe College in a radio and television course Near the end of the course, my college instructor, Jack Nixon, said to our class, The CRTC tells you how much of what kind of music you can play, when you can play it, how much time you must allot to the spoken word, and most importantly, what percentage of the music played must be performed by Canadian artists, etc., etc. I think I actually went into shock for a few moments when I heard that. The very idea that I was required to know the nationality or citizenship of someone who was singing songs or playing music on what might have been my own radio show was offensive to me, and I promptly walked out of the class, never to return. Seriously. Only three weeks left to finish the course which I was acing, but these terms were unacceptable to me. 
And believe it or not, no one ever mentioned these state-imposed regulations to us before the course started. After all, it was made perfectly clear that those in the radio industry had no control over their destinies in this regard. We were powerless to change our programming or content to anything outside what was licensed by the state regulator. Now, naturally, many Canadian artists and performers were completely supportive of these Canadian content rules. And I recall debating band member Skip Prokop of the Canadian band Lighthouse on an episode of Left, Right and Centre, which aired on CJBK Radio in London over this issue. I expect you'll be able to find that episode archived on Just Right's Left, Right and Centre archive, although I really can't remember which particular broadcast it was. But it seemed to me that Lighthouse was a great band in its time and really didn't need the assistance of government to force the public to be exposed to its music. And of course, still in the language regulation department, I became embroiled in the whole official language regulation debate, regulations that forced both French and English languages to be posted on various consumer products, something that Canadians coast to coast must endure, unless of course they live in the French province of Quebec, and which also demanded the posting of French-English signs in stores. Canada's obsession with culture, race, and language is nothing new, and today's manifestations of such regulations merely represent a continuation of established precedents. They can only be effectively reversed through the political process and by a change in law. The problem and challenge faced by those who would like to resist such regulations is precisely one caused by the fact that you'll be forced to deal with the regulators. the administrators, and the bureaucrats, whose sole and only mandate is to create and enforce such regulations. And that can be a very futile and frustrating experience. Is the unit required for your equipment currently in supply? If not, has the proper requisition form been encoded and filed with our central processing center? While waiting for a United Earth Oceans Organization acquisitions representative, ask yourself the following questions. If you have yeah, already time. Come in, Lieutenant, sit down. This concerns you. I want to hold with UEO acquisitions. Hello, be prompt. I'm very busy. Hello. My name is Nathan Bridger. I'm captain of the Sequest. Mr. Nair, UEO acquisitions and procurement. What do you need? Mr. Nair, I can't see your face. This is my face. Now forgive me for not leaving it here. I cannot sit all day like this, and I cannot get them to adjust my vidcom. Uh, what do you want? We've run out of thermal chips. Unit number? Um... TC-154-L58. Where are your dashes? TC-154-L-58. Authorization code? UEOS... <coughs> Excuse me. UEO-SQ-1. Your order is being processed. This order is two months old. How long do we have to wait? I only confirm orders, not fulfill them. No, you don't do wait, anything. Wait, wait, wait. We, we, we need this immediately. I only confirm orders. I do not fulfill them. Who fulfills them? Fulfillment. Can you transfer me, please? I don't transfer. Call back. I've been on hold for half an hour. Procedure. I've got a serious problem here. Everyone I talk to has problems. Call fulfillment. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Transfer me to your superior, please. We're sorry, but we cannot accept... Are they always this rude? Generally. This is Supervisor Charles Butch. You got a problem, Cap? Yes. Uh, We need a unit that's essential to our boat's life support systems. You're talking air conditioning. 
I don't consider that essential. Some of the sleeping quarters are over 100 degrees. The units will be there inside of three weeks. You guys can't take the heat, let them sleep on deck. We're on a submarine. Well, maybe there's a lesson in there for you. Y'all have a good day. If I wanted a nuclear warhead, I'd have it within an hour. This is gonna be a rough three weeks. Well, <clears throat> I might be able to remedy that for you, sir. Really? How? You don't want to know. Lieutenant. Well, there are salvage operators I can call. Which one? I exhausted every possible means before calling this A name, one. Lieutenant, please. The regulator. The man's a thief. There's no proof. A thief? Boats disappear. Years later, he's selling off their spare parts. He's good at finding them. He finds them before they sink. A thief. Lieutenant, you're right. I don't want to know anything about it. It's very easy to see the good results. The bad results, it's very much harder to see. You haven't mentioned the products that aren't there because the extra costs imposed by Consumer Product Safety Commission have prevented them from existing. You haven't mentioned the case of the Tris uh, problem on the flammable garments. Here you had a clear case where the, uh, a regulation of the CPSC essentially had the effect of requiring all manufacturers of children's sleepwear to impregnate them with Tris. Oh, but that's not Three years, <laughs> five years later, the regulation required the garments to be non-flammable, and as it happened, Tris was the most regularly, readily available chemical which could do it. Captain Riley? That's those, absolutely not those, true. Uh, but fin let me yeah. finish the story first, because the second half of the story is the important part of it. It turned out that Tris was a carcinogen. And five years later, or three years later, I'm not sure the exact time, the same agency had to prohibit the use of those sleepwear garments, forced them to be disposed of at great cost to everybody concerned. All right, let's look at the real interesting history here. In 1968, when Congress passed the Fa Flammable Fabric Act, they did not tell the CPSC what chemicals would comply with that and what would not. And so initially, when industry said, we're going to use TRIS, the Consumer Product Safety Commission, from their initial test, were disturbed by it and had announced informally to industry that they were not going to allow TRIS to be used. Industry balked and said, we're going to take you to court because the act only says it has to be flame retardant. You, the government, cannot tell us how to comply. And it was the industry that forced the hand of CPSC away. And I'm, they don't even deny that. I'm now. not it, trying it, it, to defend no. the industry. Go slowly. I am not pro-industry. I am pro-consumer, unlike you. I'm not pro-industry. And of course, industry will do a lot of bad things. The whole question at issue is what mechanism is more effective in protecting the interests of the consumers, the dispersed, widespread forces of the market? I actually take issue with Friedman on his last point, even though I realize he was speaking primarily from the point of view of an economist and was responding to a pro-consumer advocate. But since they were talking about government regulations, let's make it clear that it's not the proper role of a government to be either pro-industry or pro-consumer. That doesn't sound like a government that's being a referee in the game, but a player in the game, and one that is picking sides, no less. Now, because we're down to the final portion of our show today, there simply isn't time to address all of the infinite possible regulatory issues and topics we could talk about. But there are two 
that have been of particular concern to me and I think deserve mention. One of them concerns election financing regulations, an issue I'm personally well acquainted with on a provincial level, but this time round concerns the municipal level. And the second issue concerns the regulations that keep arising surrounding the so-called legalization of cannabis, regulations which are beginning to make the days of prohibition sound like the good old days. Campaign spending to be investigated, read the April 26th London Free Press headline concerning two right-of-center mayorality candidates in the recent municipal election held in London, Ontario. Written by Megan Stacy. The article cites, quote, complaints filed against two candidates for mayor, Paul Chang and Paul Pelato, for traditional and social media advertising, websites, and other personal promotion ahead of filing their nomination paperwork with elections office on May 1st, which I believe they mean 2018. Both Chang and Pilato refute the early campaigning allegations, saying any advertising before May 1st wasn't tied to their bids for mayor, but rather the work of concerned citizens and noting it was all paid out of their pockets. If the auditor determines Chang or Pilato broke the rules and the cases go to court, they could be barred from running in the next municipal race or face penalties that range from a $25,000 fine to six months in jail. Imagine that. Now, what's important to realize about this case is that neither of the candidates is being accused of overspending on their municipal campaigns. They did not exceed some sort of regulatory established maximum amount of spending. No. Instead, they're being accused of contributing too much of their own money towards their campaigns under circumstances that are dubious, to say the least. They were forced to appear before, quote, an independent committee that keeps tabs on possible violations of municipal election rules as it met for the first time. Chang urged the committee to consider the circumstances. As my campaign progressed, I realized that more funds would be needed, and I had commitments from a wide variety of voters for future donations. I fully expected this money would be repaid from those promised future donations, Chang said but those pledges dried up after he lost, he told the committee, end quote. So Cheng paid his unexpected debts with his own money and now has been accused by a complainant, identified only as a voter named Alan McQuillan, who was quoted in the article as saying, quote, There's no provision in the act for overspending and paying yourself back. You're giving yourself an unfair advantage over the competition. Now, of course, overspending's not the issue. It's over-giving, I guess you have to put it. In this, in this context. Meanwhile, Paul Pellato appears to be under the gun for operating, quote, a civics affair blog site where he opined on city issues before the election. Quote, all expenses related to the advertising of my digital properties have been and will continue to be covered by me personally, as it is my intention to continue to write blogs and utilize these digital properties in the future, he said. His lawyer, Fred Tranquilli, also added, quote, your intention for the blog is to share with the public your views on matters of public interest and to stimulate discussion. The purpose of the Municipal Elections Act is not to make a discussion or debate about matters of public interest the exclusive domain of candidates or to prohibit such discussions from taking place outside the campaign period, end quote. Well, I don't know about you, but to my way of thinking, this is simply unconscionable. And make no mistake, 
It is the intention of politicians through some regulatory process to prohibit political discussion by anyone not approved by them. We see this going on all the time from the internet right into provincial politics. I'm dealing with it almost daily. And I can tell you, we no longer live in what most people think is their democracy. Now, I haven't heard any of the results about these hearings yet, but the very notion that anyone can possibly be faced with fines, jail sentences, and prohibitions on their democratic right to run as a candidate because they raise too much of their own money is beyond obscene. And meanwhile, on the pot front, (laughs) for those who may not know, recreational cannabis, marijuana, has been legalized in Canada, although it's hard to believe given how the government is now regulating its sales and production. Believe it or not, the way that licensees permitted to sell cannabis got those licenses was through a lottery. That's right, through a lottery. Because a number of legal outlets were restricted and rationed, this was somehow considered the fair way to do it. And because the government is regulating the industry, there has been a shortage of supply, and the marketing of pot has been haphazard to say the least. So you can well imagine my surprise when I read that a dozen winners of this lottery were penalized and fined $12,500 each, get this, for failing to open their outlets by April 1st. Talk about being April Fools. Now, one of those outlets, Canopy Growth, has now been penalized $50,000 by, quote, the province's pot regulator, end quote, because it still hadn't opened by April 30th. Now, what's wrong with this picture? This is beyond insanity. This represents completely illegitimate regulation by any stretch of the imagination. And on the other side of the pot coin, I saw this open letter to the editor appearing in the May 9th London Free Press addressed to Canada's Prime Minister Trudeau and Ontario's Premier Doug Ford by Elaine B. of Clinton. Quote, We live in Clinton. A property beside our apartment building has secretly been turned into a marijuana grow-up. Next door is a children's soccer field and a nice residential area. Now, when people want to open windows, work in gardens, and play outside, we're flooded with the skunky smell from the grow-up. Our daughter's family lives in nearby Venastra, where a former greenhouse now grows marijuana. It is also in a residential area, one block from a large apartment building, daycare, recreation center, and church. The community is flooded with the smell of skunk. We challenge you. Would you want your children and grandchildren breathing in the fumes produced by these facilities? We are the average middle-class people you both say you support. Prove it. End quote. So, regulations, anyone? Be careful what you wish for. And as always, our weekly time allotment for the show is strictly regulated, and that means it's time for us to wrap it up. So join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. To black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright Well, Colonel Hogan, here we are You and I having a little coffee clutch Talking things over Now you must confess I am not the worst man in Germany, am I? Well, I don't know everybody (laughs) Actually, Commandant, I understand you a lot better than you think Really? Not many people know this But originally my name was Hogenmuller Hogan Miller. Remarkable. You're one of us. From way back. That makes a big difference. Frankly, Colonel Hogan, 
I would like to improve our relationship even more. Tell me, what is it you would like most in this world? Hmm. Let me think. You can't make up your mind? I know what I want. It's question blonde or brunette. <laughs> what a marvelous German-American sense of humor. Seriously, Commandant, there is one thing. I'm getting a little rock-happy. If it were possible to go into town some night to have dinner at the Hosnerhof? <laughs> oh, unfortunately, that's against regulations. <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs>